Is it okay to start a business with your friends? Welcome to Venture Voice, show number four. I'm Greg Gallant on the phone with Joe Kraus of Jotspot. Joe cut his teeth back when the web was young. When he founded Excite, he led five friends of his straight out of college to start what would become one of the pioneers of internet search and really laid the groundwork for everything that we're seeing now did quite well financially, but nevertheless is back at it starting a new business in the application wiki area, an area very new. He's only in beta phases right now, but is quickly moving towards having a product. So we really want to catch up with him to hear what inspired him to get back into the game of entrepreneurship after having a big success under his belt already and more about what he's up to now and hear some of his old battle stories. Enjoy. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. Could you uh, tell us about how you started your career, and uh, I think it was right out of college into Excite? Graduated in 1993 from Stanford. I was a poli-sci guy, but basically really wanted to be a computer science guy, so that meant tried to be a computer science guy and failed my math courses and instead hung out with CS graduates. 1993, didn't want to work for anybody else, got and managed to convince the smartest person I knew, a guy named Graham Spencer, to uh, do something entrepreneurial. And once I had convinced him, we recruited four friends and um, we borrowed $15,000 from our parents on a total flyer of an idea, which was to build better search technology because more and more information was coming online. And that was really the start of it. We holed up in a garage in Palo Alto and later on what was then called Architect ended up becoming a site. Now with PolySci, did you, um, were people asking you what are you going to do with that? Did you find it had any application or this was just something you did without relying on any educational background? It actually rewinds a little bit further than that. When I came home from freshman year of college, and I grew up in Los Angeles, I was met at the door literally the day I came home, and my parents said, hey, great news. We went to your high school silent auction, and we bought you a summer job. And I thought, oh, that sounds terrible. I said, well, okay, what is it? And they said, well, it's working at an architectural engineering firm. And I thought, well, I don't really know what that is, but maybe it's interesting. It's a long commute. It's like 45 minutes each way into downtown Los Angeles. And I show up for work, and I'm assigned my job for what was going to be the entire summer was to duplicate microfiche. And I'm not sure people know what microfiche is anymore. It's basically like microfilm, except it's these 3 by 5 cards that are filmed where the images on them are miniaturized, and it's an archival storage format. And the process for duplicating microfiche is that you expose it to ultraviolet light, and then you develop it in ammonia. And I was working with three 70-year-old women, and I was 19 years old. And I did this for about three weeks before I completely quit and said, I can't do this. And that convinced me that I never wanted to work for somebody else. And the next summer when I came home, instead of getting kind of a regular job, and by the way, the rest of that summer I just bagged groceries at my local grocery store, I got an artist friend of mine and convinced him that we should start a t-shirt manufacturing company. And so over the summer, we created a t-shirt manufacturing company, did designs and printing. And through that summer, by figuring out that private school bookstores were actually the ones that stocked clothes or stocked new 
printed material, silkscreen material in the summer. You know, we worked our own hours, we worked on our own stuff, and I think we made 25 grand in that summer, which for coming home from college was awesome. And I got the bug of never working for somebody else. Did that for a couple of summers, had a loft building business at Stanford. And so I had this entrepreneurial bug. And so coming out with a poli-sci degree, I knew that I didn't want to work for anybody else. I wanted to be in the technology business, and I needed partners to do that because while I was taking entrepreneurship classes at Stanford in addition to poli-sci, I didn't have the technical skills to actually build a company, which is why I was lucky to get Graham on board and these other friends to start Excite. Now, a lot of people give the wisdom, never work with your friends, and that kind of theory that just because you like somebody as a friend doesn't mean they're a great entrepreneur. Were you just lucky, or did you have something in mind when you picked that, which friends you were going to start a business with? I actually think that Excite wouldn't have survived had we not been friends. And so I understand why people say don't work with your friends. It makes it harder to make objective decisions. Certain things do become harder, but other things aren't as big an issue. Uh, one particular example is that, well, two particular examples. One is we never gave up. There was never this feeling of, well, we're going to do this for a little while and then see what happens. There was this just shared understanding that this was going to succeed because we didn't know we could fail. In fact, we had this, we had this slogan that we were unencumbered by reality. And I think being friends was the only thing that really enabled that. So I think, yes, certain things were harder, like the ability to make kind of rational, to take emotion out of certain business decisions. But on the other hand, that ability to have emotional connection is what helped us sustain in times when it was really difficult. Another example of that is we, we had a circumstance where we had to redistribute the stock stock equity between the six of us. And this is after working for 18 months. And I think had we not been friends, that would have been a potentially kill the company kind of move. Um, but I think because we were friends, it really worked. Uh, it was not easy, but it, it was successful in the end. We were able to do it and keep the company together. So, you know, I think there are definitely some advantages and I think we just also got really lucky with the group of people that we have. So do you say that passion is more important than reason? I, I actually think it's a balance. Both are necessary and neither one of them alone is sufficient. So can you tell us a story about Graham that made you decide you really want to start a business with him before you got then into business with him? Well he was just straight up the smartest guy I knew. I mean I had I was next door neighbors with him freshman year in college. I stayed friends with him throughout uh, my time in college. And uh, I had never met and still haven't met somebody that bright. He was being recruited by you know, Apple and Microsoft. And my arguments to him were, these guys are always going to want you. You're smart enough to get a job at the top companies at any time. But Rarely are you going to have the opportunity to start something on your own at a time in your life when you have so few commitments. You're not married, you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage. And it sounds funny to be making those statements when you're you know, 21 years old because you don't really have any conception of what a mortgage and kids and being married is all about. But you know that those are the things that 
do constrain people over time in terms of their ability to make choices as freely as they'd like. And so uh, from the fact that he wrote all of the tons of software that everybody on campus used at Stanford, like the bidding system for, it was the system where seniors signed up for interviews with companies that were recruiting on campus. And because more students often wanted to interview with a single company than the, than the company had slots for, there was a bidding system, kind of like an auction-style thing, where you were given points every week to bid for different interview slots. Graham had written all that software that uh, everybody was using, and it was networked back in, you know, what, 1992. So, I mean, he just, from my own personal interactions with him, through what he was doing, through who he was being recruited by, he was just the smartest guy I knew. How hard was it for you to convince him to forgo those opportunities and work with you? Did you have to keep at him for weeks, or was this... I don't know. I think... I don't remember it being super difficult. I remember... Yeah, I don't remember it being super difficult. I think he was interested. I don't think either one of us really knew what we were committing to. We just thought, well, we'd like to be working together and starting something on our own. In fact, we didn't know what we wanted to do when we first got started. We were graduating in June of 1993. We met in February of 1993 at a, at a burrito shop, and we um, we'd all brought ideas to the table of what we wanted to do, and they all stank. I actually have the slip of paper that I brought with my ideas on it, and they were just terrible. They were like, we should build applications for the Newton, which obviously wouldn't have been a very good idea, where they were uh, automatic translation software from one language to another. Also, not a very good idea. And we were all very depressed at the end of this dinner, and it was Graham who kind of saved us. He, he stepped back and he said, you know, there's more and more information coming online, and the tools for searching through it are really poor. And they were built in the 1950s. And my gut says that the importance of these kinds of tools is going to grow as more information comes and is being made available electronically. And I bet there's been a lot of research between the time the tools have been built and today. I bet there's an opportunity there. And so we all grabbed onto that and said, great idea, and, and off we went. So. Uh, I don't remember it being difficult to convince him. And yet another example of <laughs> him showing his smarts is kind of grasping the importance of this core trend very early on. From that idea, when did you decide, okay, this is the time we're going to go with it, we're going to stop researching, we're going to build a prototype and launch it? I think from the very beginning. I mean, we, from that point in February, we had decided we wanted to start the company and this is what we were going to do. When we graduated, we basically literally sat right down to work in our garage. Graham and I would go to the math and science library and pull a ton of papers and do a lot of research, and all this time we were coding. And so by the time of, you know, a year later, the summer of 94, we had a working search technology, and, uh, and we were starting to show it to people. We were getting our first contracts. We had a contract with InfoWorld magazine for $100,000, our first real money, to put all of their back issues on the web and make a searchable index of all of them. And we did that. You know, that, that first step of doing that led to what amounted, what ended up being a $3 million financing from Kleiner Perkins through kind of a series of bizarre or at least seemingly randomly connected uh, events. 
And uh, so I would say from the very beginning, we were fully pursuing the opportunity and, and by a year later actually had a, a technology that was deployable and uh, a year after that had launched. What was your experience like with Klein or Perkins and do you think that you could have done it without them? No, I couldn't have ever done it without them. In particular, it's not Kleiner. It's, I mean, Kleiner as a whole firm, but really it's about the individuals within that firm who are all superb. But we had the good fortune of working with a guy named Vinod Kosla. And Vinod is a true mentor to me and, uh, and pivotal, pivotal to our success. Without him, we would have never gotten where we were. So I'm sure a lot must have gone into making Excite what it was, but is there any, any particular story or experience that sticks out in your mind of what kind of separated you from the pack and what made it very successful? I guess the way I would kind of phrase that question a little differently to me is that there, was a, there were several key lessons that I learned in early on from Vinod and from just what we were trying to do. Um, and the most important one of those is just the pure power of persistence and how so much of a startup's success depends upon your willingness to persist in the face of what appear to be terrible odds. And the good example of that was you know, this deal with Netscape back in, what, 1995 had these two buttons on the browser. One was NetSearch, one was NetDirectory. And um, NetSearch for a long time went to InfoSeek and NetDirectory went to Yahoo. And for the first time, Netscape was putting them up for bid. And uh, there were going to be three bidders for those two buttons. And we had a million dollars in the bank and we had this meeting where we said, we've got to win this. A key deal for us. And so we had a million bucks in the bank and we came to a bid of $3 million. And we just figured if we won, we'd figure out how to pay the money. And we put our bid in, we were incredibly nervous and we lost. And the two winners were InfoSeek and MCI. And when the key thing though is we acted as if we hadn't lost the deal. We just kept, we acted as if the bidding hadn't, wasn't over. And we, calling Netscape, we sat in their lobby unannounced, we demanded meetings, and we worked and worked for three weeks, making a complete past of ourselves. And after three weeks, it turns out MCI's product wasn't ready, they couldn't deliver. And we got the deal back. And without that deal, we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have made it in any significant way. That deal really made the company. And we wouldn't have gotten it had we not been willing to persist well beyond the time that everybody was telling us it's over. And that lesson seems to carry through for me again and again and again, where the real negotiation begins at no. And I just, I think that's truly a lesson that uh, played itself out over and over again and has been true throughout my career. Can you tell me about the at-home network and why you uh, merged Excite with them? Sure. So Excite was very good by, you know, 1999, we knew that a few things. One, Excite was very good at once it got somebody using Excite of holding on to that person. So we were a very sticky site through personalization, through the quality of our services. Our problem was in attracting new people. So back in 1998, there was still a ton of new people coming to the web. Yahoo had a much stronger brand than we did, and as a result, they attracted newbies. And it's much more expensive to switch somebody from one service to another uh, than it is to acquire somebody. And we looked at it and said, we have great 
services, but we lack distribution. We lack channels for which new people are exposed to Excite and come to Excite. And when we looked at At Home, At Home had the opposite problem. They had tons of distribution, millions of houses and homes under contract to be to get cable service internet access delivered to them through at home but at home had terrible content or no real content to speak of that kept people on their network and it seemed like strategically those things were very well aligned and even to this day I agree that they're very well aligned you combine distribution with content and services into a single integrated company and I think that's very powerful so that was the rationale behind the deal so if Yahoo is able to build up a really good brand name, uh, I think you know mainly by having innovative services, and since then we've seen Google build a great brand name also based on its services, why do you think that Excite wasn't able to? We had a good brand name, but so the market was just at a different point. Even back as late as 1998, there were still tons of new people coming on the web, and their sense of uh, kind of sophistication uh, was pretty low. They wanted something that was easy and well-known, and we tried to make our services as easy as possible, but I think Yahoo had a reputation for this that was stellar. In addition, I think Yahoo and Excite's products were more similar rather than less similar. I think one of the things that Google did very smartly is that they didn't early on try to become a portal. They just said, we're just search, and they successfully used that focus and the rise of search, and importantly, the business model of paid listings to fuel that growth. And so I think it's a combination of market timing, the fact that our products were very similar to, to Yahoo's as opposed to as differentiated as Google's is to Yahoo, or was to Yahoo's, um, and the fact that uh, the user population was different at the time. So now what was your experience? You spent all this time trying to avoid working for other people, and then you ended up working in more of a corporate structure. How did you uh, survive that experience? Well, it still felt like, I still felt a strong sense of ownership because Excite was critical to the combined company's success. And so it felt bigger, it felt harder to get things done because we now had a cable access group that you know, had we had to please, we had to do things for. But the company didn't, despite being larger, didn't feel, uh, to me at least, I felt the same sense of ownership. So it wasn't bad. It just, it did get harder and harder. And so the merger closed in June of 1999. And I left in, it was announced in January of 99 closed in June of 99, and I left by April of 2000. You know, I lasted, I think, about a year and a quarter after the merger was announced. And now you left, and you, it sounds like you did pretty well for yourself, and you started in angel investing, right? Well, first, I just kind of chilled out and decompressed after kind of seven years of intense growth. I mean, when we started, we were six people, and when the time I left, I think we were 2,500, something like that, in the course of seven years. Then started doing some angel investing and just trying to help a variety of other, other companies. And then got engaged and then went traveling for four months, just kind of with a backpack around the world and my fiance. 
and then totally switched gears. Right? Got out of uh, technology altogether and into politics. Uh, so what led you, you know, they say it's a pretty nice life just investing and world traveling and politics can be a lot of fun. What's led you to want to get back involved with starting a business and going through all those drudgeries? I just think I'm addicted to it. I have a, I love, so there's this guy, a uh, psychologist named, he's got a long name, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and he's, uh, he's Czech, um, and he wrote a book called Flow, which basically describes what I think athletes would call the zone. Right? It's this kind of mental state you get into where kind of time slows down, you're at kind of your full potential, and that's what starting companies to me does for me. It, there's this intensity, this satisfaction, this fulfillment that comes from trying to create something from nothing. You just don't get that as an investor. You know, you don't, you're not building the kind of day-to-day -day relationships where, that come from shared struggle. And so I just, I knew I wanted to do it again, and I wanted to do it again with Graham, but uh, I think the fundamental reason was just, it's what I do, it's kind of, I'm addicted to it, I love it, it, it brings a sense of reward despite all of the difficulties. And that reward just comes from the satisfaction of trying to create something from nothing and the relationships that get built uh, by this sense of shared struggle over the course of many years. I think that's incredibly rewarding. Do you think there'll ever be the day when you go become a partner at Kleiner Perkins or one of these other firms, or do you think you're going to keep at it? I don't know if I'd be a very good venture capitalist. You know, I think my, I think the challenge in making the shift from entrepreneurship to venture capital is that entrepreneurs are inherently optimistic because they believe with the full force of their efforts, personality, perseverance, they can make the impossible possible. The problem is, as a VC, that's not, a, not the right assumption anymore because it's not about you and your efforts. It's about finding teams and helping them succeed. And so I would think the risk in that transition, although a lot of people have made it from entrepreneurship to venture capital, is that they keep their entrepreneur's hat on and thinking about ideas and how they could make them successful versus thinking about how to invest in teams to make them successful. The second thing is I'm not sure I would, I think it would take a while for me to transition. I mean, I, I experienced it, right? I did angel investing for a while, which is different than venture investing for sure. But being on the outside and not part of the kind of focused team, I think is a totally different experience and one I'm not sure I'd enjoy. That said, I mean, if one was a partner at Kleiner Perkins, it's a great honor. So, you know, I can't imagine that I would ever be invited, but, and then I'm not sure I'd be very good at it. <laughs> kind of the second part of that answer. That was the first half of my interview with Joe Kraus. We'll post the final part of our conversation very soon, where Joe talks about being back in the zone, starting up his new business, ChatSpot, and also some of his thoughts on this new new media we're all seeing emerging.